Our gracious God, we give you thanks again that we have heard the reading of your word. We have heard of your great and mighty deeds that you did for the people of Israel. We thank you that these deeds of deliverance point us to an even greater deliverance that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. We thank you that he comes to deliver us from our enemies, that he comes to deliver us from sin and even death itself. Oh Lord, we ask that you would be at work in our hearts. We thank you for your spirit whom you have sent to remind us of the words of Jesus, even the way in which Jesus spoke of the Old Testament and the way in which it spoke of him. Lord, we pray that you would touch our minds, that you would touch our hearts, that we would have understanding as we read and hear, that we would be a people who are changed by your Spirit, where we need his sanctifying work. We need his work to increase our faith. And so we pray that you would do that this night through the reading of your word, through the preaching of your word, that by your grace you would make us a thankful people that we have your word and that you are close with us, that we have your spirit and he is at work. So we ask this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand as I read for us the text for tonight from Joshua chapter 5. We're continuing here in the book of Joshua. It's been a little while since we've uh, been here, but I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach from these words. Joshua chapter 5, tonight reading verses 1 through verse 12. And I encourage you to uh, follow along as we hear God speaking of what he did for the people of Israel here as they crossed the Jordan River and are now in the Promised Land. Joshua chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haralot. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the, circumcis uh, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, 
Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. saying goes that an army marches on its stomach. We're not really sure exactly who first uttered that phrase. Some say it was Frederick II, better known as Frederick the Great, the great Prussian general. Some say that it was Napoleon Bonaparte, but certainly it expresses a truth about warfare and about how an army gets to the place, how it has strength for the battle. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it helps us to kind of understand the preparations that need to happen for a battle to be successful. When you watch movies or read books about the war, you don't typically hear about the cooks who are cooking food behind the line. You don't hear much about all of the truck drivers driving supplies. You hear about those soldiers who are taking the battle to the enemy on the front line. And yet without these others behind the scenes, the preparation would not happen. Without those trucks carrying food and ammunition up to the front, nothing would happen. Israel has now crossed over the Jordan River into the land. And yet what's interesting is they get ready to make war on the city of Jericho. There's much preparation that has to happen. And yet the preparations, interestingly enough, are not military preparations. You don't hear about them on the plains of Jericho doing maneuvers with the army sharpening their swords, readying their weapons. But you hear rather about the ritual preparations. They have now come into the land that God has promised, and he is getting them ready. He's getting them ready to do battle, but it's not in the way that we expect. It's all of these things that happen behind the scenes. Because even as God has called Joshua to lead the people into the land, Even as they have now entered the land, they've crossed the Jordan River. As they come now to take the land, Israel needs to be prepared. And here in Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, we see these ritual, these spiritual, as it were, preparations. They're not really military preparations, but they are ritual and spiritual preparations so they can be ready for God to work because it is ultimately God who is going to give to Israel the land that is now in front of them, the land where their feet are now standing on. So what is it exactly that God provides for Israel? Well, I want you to see three things tonight that God is providing for Israel as they get ready to do battle before the city of Jericho. 
First, God provides for Israel enemies who have no courage. Their hearts fail them. Their hearts melt. We see that in verse 1. Secondly, God gives them a sign of membership in his covenant community. He's putting his sign on his people again, saying, you are mine. Out of all the nations of the earth, you are my people. And so God is providing that sign for Israel. But then thirdly, he's providing for them a reminder of their previous deliverance. And maybe you heard it as we read Exodus chapter 15. You read about that previous deliverance that God had done a generation ago. The way in which he had destroyed Pharaoh's army, the way in which the enemy's hearts had melted. And so God is giving them a reminder of his deliverance and of his provision for them. God gives everything you need to conquer your enemies and to enter into his holy presence. These are gifts of God that the people of Israel don't deserve, the gifts of God that we as his people do not deserve, and yet God graciously gives them to us. Verse 1, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. God gives you soft-hearted enemies. God is merely confirming here what has happened earlier in chapter 4. At the end of that text, it says that the Lord dried up the waters of the Jordan. The people passed over, as it were, on dry ground. And the fear of the Lord came upon these people. And that fear, that heart, those hearts that were trembling there among the inhabitants of the land of Canaan meant that it was going to be an easy task. Maybe you remember a generation before when the spies had gone out to survey the land of Canaan. On the one hand, they said it's a wonderful land. There's grapes, there's harvest here. It's a land truly flowing with milk and honey. And yet on the other hand, the report they brought back was of Giant cities, big walls, closed gates, huge armies full of even giants. And in their fear, they turned away. And yet, what do we see now? Here as the second generation comes, we hear that the kings of the Amorites hear about Israel, the kings of the Canaanites. And you see that again, all the kings of the Amorites, all the kings of the Canaanites, all the people heard, not just in Jericho nearby, but all throughout the land, people heard that Israel was there, that God had dried up the Jordan, that all had crossed over. Maybe a few sermons ago in this series on Joshua, you remember this illustration I gave of Radio 32, Radio 32. How did they hear? Well, in Haiti, They talk about Radio 32 because how many teeth do you have in your mouth? You have 32 teeth in your mouth if you're an adult. And it's that one talking to another, talking to another, talking to another friend. And the news soon gets passed around. And you can imagine, can't you, how this news of Israel crossing over the Jordan on dry ground 
God delivering them, bringing them there, spread like wildfire. And certainly it did. They knew. So how did they react? Well, there's two expressions here in verse 1 that we see. First of all, it says that their hearts melted. Their courage was gone. We saw it earlier in chapter 2 when the spies come into Jericho. They're in the house of Rahab, and Rahab reports about the people in chapter 2, verse 11. And she says that as soon as we heard it, the destruction of these two kings of the Amorites, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And now they even have more reason to fear because the people of Israel are among them. We heard it too, if you were listening carefully back in Exodus chapter 15, that text that I read, because it, sp it spoke there not only of God's destruction of the army of Pharaoh, that immediate deliverance, but further down in beginning in verse 14, it says, The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. The word had spread already up into Canaan. The land of Philistia, to Edom, to Moab, to Canaan. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. They have no heart. They have no strength. They're weak. They cannot fight. Their hearts have melted, but not only that, there is no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Or maybe there is no breath in them. Imagine, right, having to run a race, and if you can't breathe, if you were having to breathe through a tube, just getting a little bit of oxygen, soon you would fall over. The oxygen wouldn't be getting to your muscles. You wouldn't be able to run the race. This is what it's like. The breath has left them. The spirit has left them. They are like dead men fallen onto the ground. This is the reaction of these people. Commentator Butler says, Before Israel has fought a single battle, the entire land is hers for the taking. God has done it. He has given them enemies whose hearts are soft, who lack no courage. But what about us? Is there some kind of way that this helps us to understand who we are called to be? Certainly we might say we are called to have courage, and that's true. We're going to see that about the people of Israel. They need courage. But I think we too, in a way, are called to be soft-hearted. Not in the way of the first generation. If you go back and think about Israel, we read in the book of Deuteronomy that their hearts melted at a time as well. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, as they heard reports of that land, this is what Moses said. They said, the Amorites are going to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. They were afraid. They didn't need to be afraid, but they were. And sometimes our hearts are like that, aren't they? 
And yet the second generation, this generation who now stands in Canaan, do not have hearts like that. They have hearts that are softened in a way, but softened toward God to obey His Word. And that's something that this text is full of, the obedience to God's Word, doing what He has called them to do because their hearts are inclined to Him, inclined to do His will, inclined to obey what He has commanded. And God promises that He will give His Spirit Right? There was no longer any spirit in them. The enemies didn't have the Holy Spirit. That first generation, many of them didn't have the Holy Spirit, and yet God now is giving His Spirit that they might do God's will. God gives His people soft-hearted enemies that they might be conquered and even works in their hearts so that they might obey God and see His provision. Now the text, as we go on from verse 1, of course, is not just about the enemies of Israel, is it? The text isn't just about the enemies of God's people. So why is it, why can we say that Israel, the people of Israel, do not need to be afraid? That their hearts don't need to melt? That their courage doesn't need to fail them? Well, it's because God gives them the sign of circumcision. That they are called to be circumcised. They are called to be set apart for God's service. They are God's covenant community. And as they put that sign on themselves, as Joshua circumcises the people, they can say, we are God's people. You know, we all want a better life for our kids, don't we? We always want something better for the next generation. Every time I speak to people in Haiti, it feels like I hear a story of another couple or another person in the church leaving Haiti and going somewhere else to make a new life. It might be in the Dominican Republic. It might be Central America. It might be coming to the United States. But all of those people that come have somebody backing them. They have someone giving them money, giving them resources, giving them encouragement so that for that generation, it might be a better life. They think if only my children can get out of Haiti, all of the turmoil, all of the insecurity, things will be better. We always want something better for the next generation. And yet here in the text, as we hear about what's happened between that first generation that came out of Egypt and now this second generation that is entering the promised land, we see something of the opposite. The sign of circumcision has not been put on them. There's been really no preparation for them. The first generation forgot the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. He calls Joshua to circumcise the people. Why? Well, we read it in verse 4. Here's the reason. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. 
All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way had not been circumcised. That first generation had all been circumcised. They had the sign of God's covenant placed upon them. And yet as they went out into the desert, as the new generation came up, they forgot. They disobeyed. They didn't do what God had called them to do. And here's that contrast, isn't there, between that first generation, the wilderness generation, and now the generation that is in the promised land. We can go back to Moses to see how serious God took this, this covenant sign. You maybe remember back in Exodus chapter 4 as Moses is leaving the desert where he has spent 40 years to go back into Egypt. He's going with his family and there on the way the Lord confronts him. And the Lord, it says in Exodus chapter 4 verse 24, sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, that is the Lord, let him alone. Moses had not obeyed. God takes this covenant sign seriously because it identifies them with the covenant. It is a sign, a real physical sign that they belong to God, and yet there's more to it, isn't there? And that's what we see in that first generation. The problem is not so much that they don't circumcise their children. The problem is with their hearts, and this is just a manifestation of it. It's connected with their rebelliousness, that in their hearts, as we heard this morning, in their hearts they are uncircumcised. We don't know exactly why it was. There's no explanation here. But certainly it identifies that first generation. It identifies them as a people who did not obey the Lord. And so they perished. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. But what about the second generation? What's happening now? Well, here we see now that Joshua is obeying. And again and again in the text, the Lord speaks to Joshua, telling him to do something, and he does it. Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haralot. Joshua explicitly obeys because he understands that this sign of separation from the nations, this special covenant sign, is not just about what God has done there at the Jordan River. It's not even just about what God has done. He did a generation ago in Egypt. It's what God had given, the promises he had given to Abraham over 400 years ago that he would give them this land, that God would be their God and they would be his people. 
the grace remains in effect, even though these people, this generation, their parents have disobeyed, and yet now Joshua circumcises the people. Who is it that does it? It's Joshua. Of course, he didn't do it all himself, but the way that the text reads, it gives the, it gives the focus there. Joshua, whose name means Yahweh saves. He is putting them on them the sign that reminds them that God has saved you. God has set you apart. You belong to God, and he belongs to you. And as we go through the Old Testament, and as again we heard this morning, this circumcision, which is to be not just a physical sign, but a circumcision of the heart, takes us and points us to baptism, the New Testament sign of our entrance into the people as the people of God. You see, it identifies us as God's people. Here it was the men of war, but it was also the children, all those who were receiving the promises of God. Baptism in the New Testament, circumcision in the Old, but all coming to us through the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who spends 40 days in the desert being tempted by the devil. He comes out, he is baptized, and God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And in the same way, there's the blessing of that covenant relationship that Israel receives here, even as Joshua obeys and as he circumcises the people for a second time. They finished. The first generation was perished or finished. Now in verse 8, Joshua finishes circumcising the nations. They remain there until they are healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What does it mean? Well, I think probably the best way to understand what the Lord is saying to Joshua is he's saying, Look it, I as your God have been vindicated and you now are vindicated. Imagine the way that the Egyptians spoke of Israel as they went out into the desert, saying, look at these foolish people wandering in the desert, thinking they're going to worship their God. They're going to die in the desert. There's no water in the desert. How are they going to live? Slaves. How are they ever going to provide for themselves? Slaves, how are they going to defeat their enemies who are sure to descend on them? <coughs> Maybe even for 40 years they had endured the reproaches, the scorn of Egypt. But now God takes that away by saying to them again, I am your God. I take away your reproach. All of your past sins... They're forgiven. God has forgiven you. God is still faithful despite your sin. And that idea of reproach in the Old Testament is also connected to barrenness often, the lack, the inability of particular couples 
to not have children. But God promised that he would take away the reproach of these women, ultimately of Israel itself, that the Messiah might come. That's the ultimate rolling away of that reproach. Because it was back and forth always, wasn't it? Here you have the second generation, they obey, but soon after Joshua dies, what happens? They fall back into their sin. They have a righteous king, they follow him in his righteousness. Another king comes, they follow him in his sin. Finally into exile. But the promise of the Messiah is always there. And the call is always there to be circumcised, but particularly to circumcise their This is the sign that God gives to remind them that they are his. But that's not the only provision that God gives. Finally, God gives a celebration of the Passover. God gives even more than a sign. He gives them a real reminder in a meal, in the Passover meal, but also in a meal of produce that comes from the very land that God has given them. They've heard about it. They've heard that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. The question is, is God going to provide that? Is he going to give them that now? The text says that while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Just a few weeks ago, uh, Heather made some soup jumu. It's pumpkin or pumpkin squash soup, and it's a well-known dish in Haiti. And in particular, it's a soup that is eaten on Independence Day, which is January 1st. January 1st, 1804, and every year subsequent to that, the people of Haiti make and eat soup jumu. And what's significant about that is that the reason they eat that was because the slaves who were slaves of the French in Haiti before the revolution, they had to work in the plantations, they had to work out in the fields, but they were not allowed to eat the pumpkins. They were not allowed to eat the squash. They had to take care of them. They had to harvest them. They maybe even had to cut them up and cook the soup, but they were not allowed to eat it. And so after independence, they say, no, we are going to eat it now as a reminder of our freedom, as a reminder of the deliverance of our people and our independence. God gives to Israel as well. He gives them a particular celebration, and then he gives them real food. He gives them the Passover. And here we see that in faithfulness again to God's commands, Joshua and the people of Israel keep the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening, just as God had commanded a generation before, just as God had commanded 40 years before, as the people were ready to come out of Egypt. He said, take the lambs, kill them at twilight, eat them. Put the blood on the doorposts. Stay inside that you might not be cursed along with the land. 
And so here, Passover marks their entrance into the land, just as the first marked their exodus from Egypt. But it hearkens back to the past deliverance of God the way in which he had provided everything his people need. They were weak, and yet God was strong. They had nothing, and yet God provided everything for them. The Passover looked back to the way, the mighty way, the miraculous way indeed that God had delivered the people of Israel. And for us, it reminds us too of our deliverance, shouldn't it? Because it points us to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who dies in our place. Just like that Lamb was an image of one dying in the place of those people, afraid of the angel of death coming. The blood of Christ that covers sin, just as the blood covered the doorway, covered the people in that house. And Paul makes that very explicit in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, when he says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. He has been given for us. This deliverance was reminding them of what God had done in the past, but of what he was going to do even more ultimately in Jesus, that they might be in the land, not just for a time, but indeed come into the presence of God into his very promised land. And it was a reminder that it was not their righteousness that delivered them. Indeed, back again in Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses had warned the people and it said to them, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust your enemies out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because the wickedness of these nations, that the Lord may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. A deliverance that he had sworn to them. Just as the Lord had sworn to that first generation, you will not enter the land, God now says, just as I've sworn, this generation will. A sign of deliverance, but also they can celebrate God's provision. Because even on that day, it says, the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land unleavened cakes and parched grain. It's a new harvest. It's the first fruits of what God has given. The land is flowing with milk and honey. There are fields, there are trees galore, and yet a little taste. Unleavened bread, parched grain, something quickly prepared as they get ready to go into battle. But it points them that God is providing for them now. He's provided for them miraculously for 40 years in the desert. The manna is ceasing now. The miraculous provision, as it were, has ceased. The ordinary provision God is giving, but even that is not really ordinary, is it? Because it doesn't belong to them. This is not yet their land. Their enemies are all around them. 
And yet God is saying, this is what I'm going to give to you. Will you have faith to take hold of it and to know that I will continue to provide for you every day? The promise, they are saying, by eating this, this food from the land, the promise is as good as fulfilled. God has said he's going to give them the whole land, and he will. The manna ceased. They're enjoying the produce of the land. God is still providing. And even as David will say later in that well-known psalm, God is preparing for them a table in the presence of their enemies. God provides for us as well, doesn't he? Sometimes the enemy is within. Sometimes it's our own sin. And yet we come to the table as we do every week to the Lord's Supper. And God says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And he gives us the spirit in order that we might do it. He prepares a table for us. He gives us spiritual nourishment so that we might walk out in faith. For whatever is coming in the week, God says, I'll go with you. But God says, I'm also giving you spiritual nourishment through the supper, through the preaching of the word. And yet it's a reminder also, isn't it, that even as the Passover was only for those who were circumcised, so this supper that we partake of every week is only for baptized, only for members, those who have been converted, those whose hearts have gone from fear, melted hearts, have gone from fear to faith. So the people are ready. They're ready to go to war because God has prepared and given them everything that they needed. And what they have is better than any soup jumu, no matter how tasty it might be, because they have the promise of the coming of the Messiah. We too have the promise of Jesus' return. And in these ordinary elements, something extraordinary is going on, because God is saying, I am providing for you. I'm reminding you that I've delivered you, and I'm going to deliver you again. I have put my sign on you. That sign of water, an ordinary thing, a physical thing like circumcision, and yet something that represents a true spiritual reality, or it should. And God, by his Spirit, has worked in us, softening our hearts, giving us hearts that respond in faith to his work, that walk out in faith. And I pray that that's what God would give to you, even as you go out, walk out in faith, encounter whatever those enemies might be, God is with us, and we are his people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you love us. We give you thanks that you continue to provide for us everything that we need. And we confess that we so often run after many physical things, 
And yet, what we really need is your spirit to be at work in us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us increasing measure of your spirit, that this week as we go out, that we might take these words, that you might, by your spirit, apply them to our hearts so that we might walk with you, that we might be a faithful witness, even as that second generation of Israel was a faithful witness to you and the fact that they were God's people. We thank you that we are your people. We pray that we would glorify the Lord Jesus in all that we do, all that we say. And we ask this in Jesus' name.